for machine learning, you have to actually go through, say, if you're going to take a car and you're going to categorize it, break it down to parts and pieces, you have to go through and say, these are wheels. This is a body. This is a bumper. This is a window. You have to break it down, categorize it, start feeding into the model. And then after a while, it will be able to break it down. Deep learning goes in and literally you start feeding pictures in and it actually self-categorizes. It starts picking it up within a matter of hours and days. It takes its accuracy from being 10, 15% to over 99% within three, four days. AI and machine learning, they're both part of the solution in many cybersecurity products. The issue is that machine learning tends to take a lot of time. Cyber threats are moving quickly, so computers need to learn fast to stop them. Chuck Everett, the Director of Cybersecurity Advocacy at Deep Instinct, breaks down the difference between machine learning and deep learning. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Chuck contends that deep learning is essential to help ward off cybersecurity attacks. According to Chuck, video games were his initial entry point into cybersecurity as a career path. And let this be a reminder to all the parents out there, video games are not a waste of time. Enjoy this episode. What is Deep Instinct and what do you do there? Great question. All right. Deep Instinct is a cyber vendor that specializes in deep learning and applying it to cybersecurity. Currently, we're on the endpoint market. And basically, what we do is we take an AI to the next level, looking at unknown threats, stuff that's never been seen before, and applying what, what's called our, our brain or our algorithm. We're able to detect and stop threats just like the human brain would. We can identify it, stop it, prevent it uh, from even hitting the system, sub 20 milliseconds. So it's it's kind of taking machine learning to that next level. My role at Deep Instinct, I've actually been here for almost five years now. I'm one of the first employees for North America. My current role right now is Director of Cybersecurity Advocacy. Basically, I'm company spokesman. I'm education I work with a lot of different groups, a lot of different companies on talking about the security stack. What do they have there? I do a lot of lectures and speaking around what's the cybersecurity threat landscape looking like right now? What sophisticated attacks are coming out? Those type of things. So a lot of it's just around education and getting you know people up to speed of what's going on out there and the scary stuff, the stuff that can be prevented, as well as you know what direction cybersecurity is going in the next couple of years. Well, listen, for those of you who don't know Chuck and you follow him on LinkedIn or want to check him out on LinkedIn and follow what he's up to on LinkedIn, you might get scared because he does find a lot of articles about modern current event hacks because these things are certainly happening. They're in the news all the time. You know, you kind of touched on deep instincts going down this path, which is almost like the holy grail, uh, hopefully, of cybersecurity, this idea that it can teach itself. In the old days, I had to know what the threat was in order to program a defense against it. You're saying now you guys are going to preemptively recognize unknown threats. That's what you had just mentioned before. Talk about what goes into doing that, because a sub, you know, if the fact that you can do it at all is pretty impressive. This fact that you can make a decision on it, like you said, in sub 20 millisecond, that's banana land, right? So exactly. How does a system recognize something it's never seen before? <laughs> I guess that's the magic question. It, it is. And honestly, that's what a lot of times I get back from clients and prospects. I, hey, this sounds like black magic. You, you're blowing smoke at me. Those type of things. Yeah, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely right. As I said, I've been in cybersecurity for over 25 years. And the reason I'm at Deep Instinct is because this product is cutting edge. 
it's the future. That's why I'm here. As we know, you know, right now you could be anywhere you wanted to within the cybersecurity space. If you have the credentials, you've been there. Oh, yeah. I'm here because of this product. So what they've done is they've built a deep learning framework from the ground up. This isn't like image recognition that Google uses or self-driving that Tesla uses. This is their own framework built from the ground up specifically for cybersecurity. They train on hundreds of millions of different samples and we train on raw data. So we don't have to label it, say this is good or benign. It actually learns on its own of what's good and what's bad, what's malicious. And we do it on PowerShell scripts, on different types of files across the board. And because of that training, and we've been doing this for well over six years now, our brain's gotten so intelligent. I can tell you adamantly that zero of our clients last year experienced a ransomware attack. That's crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. You just you kind of, you drop that bombshell there. I've taken the major IOCs out there, like for um, the major breaches that were out in the media. I've taken those IOCs, those, those indicators of compromise, ran them through our engine, but I ran them through with, an, with one of our brains that was actually six to nine months old at the time. I did this everything from January 1st of last year till December 31st this past year. Every single one of those major ones, we would have prevented it when nobody else did. Everybody else added them to their blacklist. They got them added to their models a week to two weeks later. We had it there. We would have prevented it three, four, six months beforehand. In some cases, even nine months. So that's the power of deep learning and applying this. Other companies are trying to do it, but they're, they're, they've bought image recognition or facial recognition companies and they're trying to apply it. And it doesn't work because you've got to build it from the ground up. You know, obviously you can't disclose everything, but, you know, give us an idea of what makes it different uh, because you and you mentioned just a moment ago, it's like you use the word brain, like you ran it through the brain. Right. So give us an idea of what series of things are you looking at that help Deep Instinct identify threats with better accuracy or quicker than other cybersecurity products? It really comes down to literally our algorithm or what we call our brain mimics the human brain, literally does that because it actually creates different layers and different neurons and how it connections. And so it's not a straight machine learning. Hey, it's kind of, hey, if this happens, you do this. I kind of use the equation of the difference between the Terminator. He's got a directive. He goes this. He goes after John Connor. He does this. If he's there, he goes there, looks in the phone book. That With us, we just look at it and say, you know, what? we look at the entire file, less than 20 milliseconds say, you know what? We know this is bad. Get out of here. It's not like the legacy signatures, like you said, you have to know something's bad beforehand. We know it because it's like, as a human, look, you ask a two-year-old to tell you the difference between a cat and a dog. They're going to get it right every single time. Mm -hmm. But you try and ask a computer to do that, even image recognition, they struggle with it. It's the same type of thing. And so it's just those nuances built in. It's, it's an advanced AI that's capable of making those decisions, but in you know milliseconds to be able to decide, okay, is this malicious or not? And if it's malicious, I'm not letting it run. So we're actually doing a pre-execution as the file's being accessed or written to disk as it's being dropped by something, even like a lay of the land. Like we've seen quite a few of those ones out there where they're vulnerabilities. They're using the lay of the land, they're using the vulnerability to drop in the malicious files. We see that, we stop it. We even prevent it from even hitting there. So no matter if it was a, a misconfiguration where somebody left RDP open, as soon as they get in and start running their tools, bingo, we shut it down. So that's the power of this. It doesn't need even like EDR where it looks for patterns and things happening. We don't need that. We shut it down before we even heads. And so we're actually eliminating a lot of the background noise and the, the noise and the alerts that go along with the lateral movement of it because we're shutting it down. You don't have to execute it and start seeing, okay, is this happening? Okay, let me go out to the cloud, look at this, come back. Okay, in 20 minutes later, I'll let you know that this is bad. Or in five minutes later, 
it's already too late. You know, within 15 seconds, it's already sending out crypto worms and infecting other systems on your network. We shut it down before it even gets to that point. So it's, it's taking our security SOC teams out there from being reactive to now being proactive. They can now prioritize their time, go after something. When they get an alert from us, our customers are saying, you know what? When I get an alert from Deep Instinct, that's a high fidelity alert. I need to go to that now. There are other systems, they're producing so many alerts per day. Some One of my customers said, hey, we get 70,000 alerts a day. We ignore them. <laughs> so let's dive into that great point you just made, which is this idea of false negatives and or false positives. Either way, it can become a bad, it can be a problem, right? So if you're talking about endpoint security, if I'm, my application's in the cloud or a microservice in the cloud that my application relies on, if it's getting a false positive and I'm a customer, hey, I'm not gonna be pleased because I can't execute my transaction. If it's getting a false negative and telling the, uh, or a false, or oh, false negative is really bad. That means slipped and slipped through. If a false positive happens on the IT team or the cybersecurity team, that's a problem. Like you just said, 70,000 signals that aren't actually problems. Of course, if you hear 70,000 signals, you won't hear any signals. Exactly. It'll effectively be in a useless system. How do you guys go about, I guess, what is the process or what's, the, what's behind the engineering that helps mitigate false positives, false negatives? Well, ultimately, it's, it's the core of our product. It's our brain. It's that training on 250 million samples and understanding what's malicious and what's benign. To the point of deep instinct, we stand behind our product so much and we see this across the board. We actually are the only ones in the, in the world right now that are offering a false positive guarantee. Less than 0.1% false positives. We guarantee that. Money back guarantee. And also, too, we also have a ransomware warranty that's actually built in, that's backed by an insurance company for $3 million. If you get hit with ransomware, we have a $3 million warranty. That's how confident we are in our product. And going through the getting those certifications and getting those, those warranty backups in place, we had to go through a, a huge certification project and testing. And everybody's come out and said, you know, what? There's, there's nothing else like this on the market. We've never seen this before. Oh, that's pretty cool. The way you guys are selling it kind of reminds me of, uh, do you remember back in the day, LifeLock, where the, where the guy was like, hey, this is my social security number? Exactly, yeah. But selling through, making promises through guarantees is pretty pretty cool. Yeah. You know, this space is really, this space is not going away. We've talked to many people in this space and the amount of threats and the amount of and advanced threats that keep happening, it's never going to stop, right? Like arguably today is going to be the least sophisticated day of attacks in the next 10 years. Um, which is weird to think about, right? But the attackers themselves, give us an idea of what's happening in the industry. Like how, how are cybersecurity experts, yourself, other companies, how's the industry, where is it starting to focus? You mentioned yours is on endpoint security. You're focusing on machine learning to like basically educate itself and figure out what it needs to do to protect things. Yep. Do you see that? What's where all cybersecurity companies are going? Is it going to be tackled that way? What are some changes that you think might possibly might be imminent to like, that companies are going to have to start implementing in order to protect themselves. Well, first, we're going to talk about, you know, the cybersecurity strategy. And I definitely see the threats out there and the threat landscape is constantly evolving. It's getting more sophisticated. We're seeing it where nation states, their tools that they're using, yeah. like we've seen from the NSA tools, from the Snowden, as well as to Russia, um, the solar winds, as well as other ones. We're seeing those toolkits getting the hands, hands of the common criminal gangs. And they're utilizing those out. And so as soon as a lot of times a breach comes out, it comes out, it's reverse engineered and they've added that in. We've also seen now where cyber criminals are actually running their own machine learning, what we're calling adversarial AI. 
they're running through their own engine saying, okay, hey, you know what? I'm going after this target. I know they're running Sentinel-1 or CrowdStrike. Let me run it through my machine learning engine to see what I can do to get by their stuff so it looks like my packages are benign. If I need to space this out or, hey, I can only do one action every two minutes, those type of things. So we're seeing that adversarial AI come into play now. Not only the, you know, the nation states are using it, but the common criminals are. Where deep learning has come into, we've actually built our product around not being able to be susceptible to that. We're naturally immune to it because we actually train on poison data. We actually train on those type of things. We're able to recognize and see that and it does it. We stop it. So that's one huge trend that we're seeing is that the cyber criminals are using their own AI. AI is the future. Yeah. But the problem is that the more AI you get there, the more false positives you get, the more noise you get, the more it takes cybersecurity professionals to look at the console, eyes on glass, to figure out, okay, what are the patterns? What are the trends here? Some of the AI is getting better at putting that together. But the problem is it takes, you know, cyber criminals are more patient these days. So they're getting into systems yeah. and they're sitting there for days, weeks, or even sometimes months, and they're moving fairly slowly. They're putting back doors in. They're, they're obfuscating themselves. They're putting in other obvious things. Hey, how do you respond to this? You respond over here. Okay, I'm going to go over here now and um, do this because you don't seem to notice it. They're doing that more and more. So how do you detect it? How do you get that? And that's prevent the first attack coming in. So using an AI, an advanced AI, like our deep learning, is the direction. It is It is the, the future. So you know, think of the future. If we're all using, if the if I'm a criminal and I've written a program that can learn and think, and you've written a program that can learn and think, well, how does this, what is it? Like, are we just constant? I'm sending you attack. You send me a block. I change my attack. You send me a block. I change my attack. Like this, this will never end. This will never end until I guess you figure out that I, I guess, and cause like you said, the, pay, the, the bad actors themselves are very patient. So they're not going to do a series of attacks. Like they're yep. not going to come at you with like 1000, like when you remember when you used to have to get your systems pen tested and they were just like, people still <laughs> have to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I think we just turned the block on for this one hour and it's over. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look at North Korea. North Korea just got caught um, putting job postings out there looking for pen testers. Yeah. And hiring them to actually hack into systems, banking systems as pen testers. Yeah. We're, we're seeing that type of stuff on a continuous basis. But you're, you're right. It, it's going to be a, constant cat and mouse getting in front of it. And that's where that's machine learning. And that's where deep learning, deep learning has such a huge barrier to entry because you got to build it from the ground up and build from there. It's going to take a while and cyber criminals are not going down that path. They just don't have the resources at this time to be able to do that. So deep learning is completely different than machine learning. Machine learning is where it takes months sometimes on a minimum. I'm seeing from the graphs and that when a new attack vector comes out, like there was just one that came out three weeks ago, and once it came out publicly, everybody blacklisted it, the old, you know, mm. blacklisting the, the hash. But the attack itself and the variance and the modifications, and the mutations, the polymorphic part of it still got through everywhere. They had to go back and rework the machine learning models in order to prevent that. And it took on average, I'm not going to say names here, but some of the, you know, the major, you know, Fortune 10 out there that does this stuff. It took them almost three weeks to get it down. And they just came out with it mm. yesterday. Other companies, it took them seven to 14 days before they reworked the machine learning models. One critical thing about Deep Instinct and the deep learning we're doing, our brains and how often we have to put on an update, four times a year. You can be completely disconnected and we'll prevent zero days, four months now with a brain. Most of our clients are running with, with brains or algorithms that are months old 
because you doesn't need to be updated because it's like the human brain. And that is a huge game changer. You don't need to be connected to the web. You don't have to be connected to the net or the cloud to get your daily updates. So give us an idea. You know, one of the things I'm sure that we have some people that are listening to the show right now that may not fully understand the delta between deep learning and machine learning. Can you share the difference, making a more common example that maybe we can use? I like the idea of image recognition because I fully understand that. Um, I used to work at a social media management software company. I remember back in the day when we tried to like help brands find photos on Instagram. Like you just said, find, find a ball. Well, it might could bring back a plate or it would bring back anything that looked like a circle. It was, I was like, this, these aren't, you know, this is not a, this is not a ball. Right. And so this was at its infancy and it took a long time to program, just as you suggested, yep. by the way, kangaroos and dogs look very similar too. the, the machine can't figure it out unless they can see its legs. Yep. But you know, what we understood of machine learning at the time was obviously in its infancy. Give us an idea of what the difference is between machine learning and deep learning, because I think this is a fascinating subject that a lot of people don't quite recognize how much they can recognize with their human eyes in a split second mm-hmm. compared to what would need to program a machine to recognize. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the biggest differential is the data input you do yourself. So for machine learning, you have to actually go go through, say, if you're going to take a car and you're going to categorize it, break it down to parts and pieces, you have to go through and say, these are wheels. This is a body. This is a bumper. This is you know a window. You have to break it down, categorize it, start feeding it into the model. And then after a while, it will start picking up on that. It will make it be able to show it a picture of a car and it will be able to break it down. Wheels, this, that, you know, and even then start telling the difference between, you know, a truck and a car, you know, just don't throw in an El Camino and you'll confuse the heck out of it. You know, um, that's kind of the basic right there. And it uses very limited data sets and very, like, and it's what's called supervised learning. You can even do unsupervised learning and that's after it's kind of gotten picked up where deep learning goes in and literally you start feeding pictures in and it actually self-categorizes. It starts picking it up within a matter of hours and days. It takes its accuracy from being, you know, 10, 15% to over 99% within three, four days of doing that. And those are common models. And so they're applying it to um, cancer image recognition. Mm. They're actually able to see cancer um, or, or an oncologist or them, they go and look at it. And they're able to predict and see the cancer better in the margins better than a doctor can. That's, you know, some of the stuff. They've also taken deep, uh, deep learning and applied it to pharmaceutical students have taken it, fed the stuff into it with all these different ingredients. And it actually came back with new drugs that have never been seen before and they've been able to run with. So as I said, deep learning is literally almost being creative in a sense. It's able to be creative, say, okay, what's the difference here? What's going on? And how do I put these in my own categories? And it's able to see that and do that. Yeah, it's mind boggling to think about what the future is going to hold. It is. The the analogy between dogs and cats is one of the the easiest ones to to kind of see there and talk about. You know, they're all fuzzy. They all have whiskers. They have eyes. Very subtle differences. Um, But as I said, a two year old can do it. Same thing with deep learning can do it in milliseconds. Yeah. The idea that the idea that you can see a like you said, a CT scan or a CAT scan or whatever scan is used and you can recognize like something can recognize a cancerous cell versus you know, the human eye and people, we can't recognize it until it's like a cluster and we can only process so much information. So imagine yep. running an EMR on an electronic medical record through a deep learning system and instantly being like, that's cancerous, that's cancerous, that's cancerous, this person, that's cancer. Yep. And it's like, you know, we already know this about cancer, right? The earlier it can be detected, the more likely the survival rate is. And that's the nuance at the, I guess that's by, you know, at the molecular level, this is like the idea of like, 
applying it at the code level, which is crazy to think. You know, one of the things that people always fear for in machine learning, artificial learning, deep learning, whatever the categories, is this idea that people will become replaced. But someone has to program the machine. The brain needs to be programmed. Because even though it is learning on its own, you guys are still bringing inputs in. Do you see a place where machines will teach themselves or will it always be in a limited capacity where people will need to keep programming them? Eventually, you know, machines can definitely, I don't want to say self-learning, but basically it's gotten to the point now like where we just continuously feed in huge amounts of raw data. I mean, we have um, large numbers of threat researchers. They're constantly going out there. They're searching the dark web. They're looking for stuff. They've joined other groups. They're pulling in stuff, new threats to feed into this to see what our brain thinks of it and, and to train it. And in those very few cases where we've ever had a false negative, where we don't meet something. Okay, why is that? We'll actually take that, mutate that a thousand times, add that into our model and get that there and see, okay, we'll figure out, okay, why is this? Um, just in the past month, I've seen two brand new attacks that we've never seen before. Uh, we prevented them luckily. But since I've been here for five years, I can count on one hand how many times I've seen a false negative actually get biased. And it was because of uh, shell code injections, those type of things that we didn't have built out yet. Now that we have, you know, in-memory protection and shell code, arbitrary shell code, those type of things, we're able to see that type of stuff. And it was basically those newer attacks taking in a new, you know, fileless based stuff. You're running only in memory, never running to disk. How do you prevent against that? And so those are the type of things that um, you always have to have engineers there to help. Okay, functions and features are these new vectors are coming in. A lot of it, the codes is still the same on the backside. But it's coming in from a new vector. And a lot of times you have to be there to help program that. But also, too, you got to be validated. You have to validate. If we're not there testing our product on a daily basis, pulling down the latest threats and validating, we'd just be waiting for customers to phone in saying, hey, you know what? This isn't working. And that's not what we're doing. We're constantly <laughs> in front of it. So we actually spend more time validating and making sure our product is working properly and optimally. As I said, we've had zero successful ransomware attacks in the past year. There you go. That's pretty intense. You know, I also want to dive into your background a little bit so that our audience can get to understand how you got into this field. So, you know, let's start Let's start with that exact question. How did you get involved in security to begin with? What was it an interest of yours at a very early age or did you kind of fall into it by chance? Give us an idea how you ended up in, in, this, in the cybersecurity realm. Yeah, um, honestly, to start off, I was, you know, in college, I was um, big time geek. I'll date myself here, you know, thin nets. Basically, we were doing, you know... Um, Networks throughout the campus running coaxial cables and terminators, that type of stuff, playing Duke Nukem and <laughs> Warcraft back in the day, doing local lands. Uh, school ended up putting in a land and we helped, you know, talk to them and built it out. Next thing you know, I'm running the program in college. And then after that, I was with Kraft Foods and got on the automation side and then segmentation between, you know, PLCs, you know, automation and office networks. And then from there, it kind of built out from firewalls from there. Uh, went on to the state and the government, uh, building out and designing massive IP networks for different things, worked for some different government agencies. Then I went to the finance space. I ran a 60-person SOC for 80% um, of United States ACH traffic, working directly with Homeland Security and Cyber Command on some of the major breaches that we've had historically. I've been involved in the backside of that. And then naturally from there, um, I went over into the vendor space. And then I was with Carbon Black um, until they IPO'd. And then this product offering, um, you know, I, I kind of stick with who has the best product on the offering on the market right now. Yeah. What's going on? What the direction and what can I do to help steer that and grow the product? So give us an idea. I'd love to understand what fascinated you the most about cybersecurity, because, you know, you were it sounded like you were, you know, when you were in college, you're running networks, dropping line, you know, making sure your war gaming is, is up and running as fast as possible. Yeah. 
what was fascinating specifically about cybersecurity that you were like, oh man, I want to go down this path? Because obviously you had a lot of paths to choose at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of it came from, you know, from actually in college. Once we got the network, I'm running, realizing, hey, you know what? Um, our bandwidth was being chewed up by Napster back in the day. We, <laughs> we filtered this down. So it's getting into the firewalls and getting the routing, and, you know, and then all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, now we're being attacked. Okay, what's, what's you know, let's set up some honeypots. And so a lot of it was just cat and mouse games, learning about it. And then from there, you know, I went into the finance side and I got into the compliance and PCI audits, FFIAC. And it just, it became a natural of we're basically networking, all paths and networking kind of lead down that security path because sure. you always have in the back of your mind, what are your IP routes? Where are you going to? Where are you compl- looking at your, your firewall rules? And it just kind of it built from there. So, you know, kind of just natural progression from IT building computers to networking and then network security and then compliance and then overall, you know, security in general, you know, and um, just, it's just kind of grown from there. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm also assuming this is a, this particular industry, I mean, the level of, I guess, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a game itself, right? It's an intense industry because you are the good guys. You're trying to stop the bad guys and there's constant change. So like it's yeah. every, every person I've talked to in the cybersecurity space kind of alludes to the fact that it, it requires like a, almost like a desire to win. It's almost like sports. Like you're always trying to win every day. You're trying to win the day. Well, you're trying to win or you're trying to stay, you keep your head above water. Literally that's what it comes down <laughs> to a lot of times. Um, but it is, but it's, it's security. There's so many different facets of it. Even though, you know, the gray area, the purple team, Hey, you know, what? I want to try attacking. I want to be like, we talk about pen testing. Yeah. You want to try and attack and see who comes back with that. You want, you know, physical security. Hey, can I jump your fence, get in and put a USB drive in? There's different aspects of it that appeals to just about anybody. So you want to be the good guy. You want to be hero, the defender. Absolutely. You want to be one of the attackers and test the defenses. You can do that. Or you can be <laughs> kind of in, the, in the middle of watching for it and say, Hey, you know what? I caught you, you know? Or, you know, or you can be, you know, climb the ladder like I have and be one of those senior leaders sitting back and helping direct the chess pieces and saying, hey, I can see the trend we're going from here. Where's our risk mitigation? I don't need as much resources here. Let me move my resources over here, especially right now. You know, in the U.S., there's over 500,000 open security professional positions right now. Globally, there's over 5 million. Yeah, the latest estimates. It's insane. So people are a lot of times moving around. They're looking for greener pastures, those type of things. It's how do you retain your employees? How do you keep it there? And at the same time, how do you keep your system secure with all this churn going on? So it's it's fun. That's a great question. How, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Getting the caliber employee you want and then keeping them satisfied and figure out what makes them tick. And that's exactly what it is. Hey, what do you enjoy? Do you enjoy sitting there staring at a screen all day? No. What do you enjoy doing? Let's do it there. Let's make it better. Yeah. What can we do to make your job better and easier and, you know, and, and take it to the next level? Give them sense of ownership. And a lot of times, you know, that just intrigues people. If you just have somebody sitting their eyes on glass, staring and responding to alerts, and most of the alerts are false positive, they're going to get burnt out. They're not going to want to stay there. <laughs> Makes total sense. Hey, I can tell you have a serious passion for this. I can see why Dave Instinct wants you on the road talking for this, man. You get fired up to, from people to the actual process, to the industry, you get fired up. Chuck, it was awesome having you today on IT Visionaries. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. This is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so our audience could get to know you a little better. You ready? Absolutely. All right. You mentioned gaming early on. Are you still a gamer? I'm still a gamer. Uh, there's you know, like a 49-inch you know, Samsung <laughs> G9 behind me. Um, still, you know, play my games, a lot of massive um, multiplayer online stuff, uh, MechWarrior, those type of things. So abs- absolutely. There you go. 
So I'm not as familiar with MechWarrior. I'm assuming this is like a multi, like those giant, giant robots. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, they look like RoboCop too. Yeah, it kind of. Yeah, but big time. Yeah, like ten story tall robots. Yeah, <laughs> ballistic weapons. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And for those of you that are not watching the YouTube version, you're just listening to the podcast. Chuck has like a tricked out setup. I'm watching. I'm looking at him, looking back at me. <laughs> He's got soundproofing on his walls. He's got. I don't know what that is in the back. It looks like a blue. It looks like a like a, a sound equalizer on the board. <laughs> Give us an idea. <laughs> Describe why why is your why is your setup so nice? I mean, it just looks so nice. It looks like a studio grade setup. Talk about that. Um, it's because you know. I do a lot of public speaking and because of the pandemic, a lot of stuff is shifted to virtual. And I wanted to make sure I had a nice quality setup for like, just like a podcast like this. So people can see myself and hear myself. You're not distracted by that. So I want to make sure good lighting, that type of stuff. Also too, this this is kind of like my little mini man cave. You know, I got kids too. I got got 12 and nine year old and we'll come in here and play games and, you know, without having to wake up the rest of the house. So it just gives us a place to come in. I have multiple monitors, multiple systems and, also, too, I got my lab here, too. So I got my black lab where I can detonate, you know, ransomware, that type of stuff safely. And, you know, it just you, you need some place to do that. And might as well give it a nice, a nice aesthetic also. Oh, man, I love how you live and breathe. like you. You literally just mixed fun with work. Yep. If you didn't catch what Chuck just said, he has his own skunk works lab where he drops <laughs> ransomware and other things at it. Now, I'm curious, when you first joined Deep Instinct, did you try to penetrate a Deep Instinct protected system to see like how good it was? Um, I'll, I'll be quite honest. I actually met Guy Caspi, our CEO, in uh, Las Vegas. I got called several times by these guys. I had put them off for about six to nine months. I wasn't interested in talking to them. They were hounding me. Finally got a hold of me, a recruiter, and said, hey, you know what? Guy Caspi wants to talk to you. I see that you're at RSA, or, uh, RSA you know, Black Hat. He said, I see you're at Black Hat in Vegas. He's there too. Can you spare an hour to talk to him? So I did. I spared an hour. I sat down with Guy. We ended up talking for two and a half hours. And he convinced me, okay, let me take a look at this. I was extremely skeptical. I'm like, there's no way they can do what they're saying they can do. So I um, signed an NDA, got my hands on the software, did some stuff, tore it apart, and I was floored. I was flabbergasted. I, I, spent, <laughs> I spent over a week trying to penetrate and do stuff, um, given you know the product was still maturing and just coming out of stealth mode. But still, the promise of what it had and what it could do, I was floored. And I was set. I'm like, okay, guys. Sign me up with this, this small Israeli company that I'd never heard of. Let me go from Carbon Black. They're getting ready to IPO. Let me come over here because I believe in this product. That is awesome. Listen, I like how you just, you know, you just revealed, hey, your work and your personal fun kind of just intermixes a little. Like, I love the fact that you have this Skunk Works lab that you constantly go at, you know, that you leverage. What else do you like to do outside of the world of work? So you, when you're not hacking your own systems or playing games, <laughs> what else do you like to do? Um, I said, I got two boys. I got a nine and 12 year olds who are allowed to do stuff, but we're really big into 3d printing right now. I oh, got yeah? a 3d printing lab separate. <laughs> I got seven printers, everything from, you know, resin based printers to filament based printers, trying different things. We're actually printing out a life-size R2D2 right now. So we're working on the Arduinos and the electronics to make that work, the remotes. So there's, there's some user groups out there where you're able to print out the stuff and build it. So we're working on that right now. I got two printers right now, uh, printing out the parts and pieces for that. So it should be done. Hopefully the next month or so. Okay. I have two sons as well, just about the same. I, they're th- 13 and nine, although my nine-year-old's about to age up to 10. So I'm right in your wheelhouse in regards to age. I can promise you my kids are not doing something productive like that. I think they, they're mostly like fighting each other with Nerf war. <laughs> oh, we got plenty of that. We got, my, my wife threatened to kill me if I brought home another Nerf gun for these guys. So 
But by the way, don't do the hypers. They leave welts, and I, I suffer most of them. <laughs> I don't even know what yeah. a hyper Nerf gun is, but if you're telling me it leaves a welt, I'm not buying that. Because let me tell you something. My kids also have bad aim because I've been hit. I've been hit as an innocent bystander. Right there. That looks like a rubber bullet. They're the rubber bullets that shoot out, and they come out like 300 feet per second, and they leave red welts. <laughs> Trust me. My kids love these. I hate them. I've hit them all now. <laughs> You can see they're laying around my office. I'll be sitting here next to you. I'll I'll get hit three times. Well, hopefully that doesn't. Actually, I would like that to happen because that'd be kind of funny, but I don't. (laughs) Chuck, it was awesome having you on the show today. Thanks for sharing all of your stories and some of the future that is available to us with deep learning as part of the cybersecurity industry. And, you know, you paint an interesting picture. I got it. You know, what else can I say? Our audience, we have to cheer for the guy, people like you. Well, you got, you guys have to win because I don't want to go to bed every night knowing that something of my, like my money, my information, I don't want to know that I'm going to get hacked. So you got to win. That you're exactly right. <laughs> when I talk to CISOs and CIOs, I ask them, what do you fear most? And they're like waking up in the morning and find out that I've been breached. And our customers yeah. adamantly tell us across the board, you can go out and you know, Gardner peer reviews. You can see our customers are saying they can sleep at night. They don't worry about it any longer. And that's exactly why we're here. Oh yeah, you like you you hit it the nail on the head because some of these companies that have been hacked in the past, like they 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 like reveal it well after like a million plus records have been you know compromised or whatever the case may be. But it literally took them that long to notice. Like they didn't notice as it was happening. It's like oh, exactly over a million because you said it like it's like slow. Like these comp these these worms these new programs are slow and they're patient. And they're like well, especially the cyber espionage. It sits in the systems for years. Where one company went into and found out that. You know, there was a nation state. Actually, every time they drop a new design into their their printers, their silicon printers, it was being stolen. It was literally shipping straight out to an APAC country immediately. And it had been happening for years. They had no clue. It's insanity. Yep. It is insanity. All right. Chuck, we, you know, thanks for sharing everything. Like we said, hey, you got a lot of people on the show cheering for you and deep. It, like you guys got to win because I want to know that all my stuff's protected. Oh, we're, we're, we're going to win. <laughs> we're, 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 yeah, we're, we're maturing and shaping the market. It's, you know, people are starting to believe us. And that's the problem is we have a very unbelievable story. And more and more people are seeing, you know, some of the major, major, major stuff and, and leap forwards we've made this past year is uh, taking us to that next level. We look forward to seeing the growth, man. That's exciting. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on here. 